read the whole of Genesis chapter 1. Today I'd like to read just the verses <coughs> that deal with the first day, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. And this is the inerrant, authoritative word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Amen. Father God, we come to your word, and we want to handle it with reverence. We delight in it. Father, this is our uh, guide for our path. It is a light unto our path. And I pray, Father, it would also do its sanctifying power within us. I th thank you for Christ's prayer, where he said, thank sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. And that is our desire, O Lord, to be more and more conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be at work in us, I pray. And I ask that you would anoint me and enable me to not stutter, to clearly proclaim your word. And even if I should stutter, Father, that the power of your word would be so quickened to our hearts that uh, all would recognize your spirit, O oh God, is in this place. Father, be with us. Enable us to be hearers and doers of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Well, last week, when we were looking at Genesis 1, we were relating the chapter as a whole to the authority of God over every area of life. He gave commands to every area of life. He gave meaning to every area of life. And he has authority in every area. And we contrasted that worldview with the inadequate worldviews, eight pagan worldviews to be precise, that uh, you can find out there. And uh, before we go on to look at this verse by verse, I think we need to confront a much more subtle problem, and this is a problem that occurs right within the evangelical church itself. While many evangelicals verbally affirm the authority of Genesis chapter 1, they are so confused, or they bring so much confusion, one or the other, that this chapter loses all practical authority in people's lives. And let me just explain why that would be. Uh, you're all familiar with how there are people who have become very cynical over eschatology. They call themselves pan-millennialists uh, because they've seen so many different interpretations of eschatology. They wonder, is anybody really going to be able to know what the truth on this is? So they don't bother studying eschatology. Um, they just said, say, whatever the case, I just know it's all going to pan out in the end, and that's sufficient for me. And so they, they become somewhat cynical. Well, I think in the same way, in the last 200 years, and it has been only 200 years, some 19 different false interpretations of this chapter have uh, crept into the church, and trying to sort it all out just makes your head spin. If you've read the literature on it, trying to keep them all straight in your head is quite something. And by the way, I did copy 20 copies of a paper that outlines these 19 different views and looks at different things. If some of you want to persecute yourselves and study it, um, I, I do have some extra copies in the back. But uh, let me just give you a few examples. 
There is the pre-Genesis gap theory, the gap theory, the multiple gap theory, the midweek gap theory, the day age theory, the pictorial day moderate concordism theory, the hesitation theory, the Edenic creation theory, the figurative day theory, the cosmogonic day theory, the relativity day theory, the days of revelation theory, the days of divine fiat theory, the revelatory device theory, the framework hypothesis, the two register cosmology, in case you think that's not a separate one. Uh, there are many framework people who reject um, Klein's two-registered cosmology, so they, even though they're related, they are distinct. Uh, but there's the two-register cosmology theory, the analogical day theory, the day peak theory, and the preparation of Palestine theory. And all of them claim it was exegesis alone that drove them to these different interpretations. Well, 19 views later, you can understand why some Christians begin to be a little bit cynical. Uh, what used to be a chapter simple enough for a child to understand, you know, in the 3,400 years after Moses, suddenly in the last 200 years has become so complex that even experts are unwilling to be totally dogmatic. They say, well, there's any number of views that are all, all um, <coughs> uh, have a certain degree of validity. Well, I think you can excuse Christians if they become a little bit cynical. And what I hope to do today is I hope to show you that the way a child reads this chapter is the way it should be read, okay? And obviously there are ramifications of this that will take years to explore that maybe a child wouldn't understand, but the obvious sense is the real sense. Now, to encourage those of you who haven't been trained in uh, modern and I believe compromised methods of interpretation called uh, hermeneutics, I thought I'd read a little email to you, and I don't know which one of you guys sent this to me, but I thought this was classic, this was uh, great, and it kind of makes fun of the tyranny and the foolishness of the experts, and it's titled, The Exegesis of a Stop Sign. And I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but it says, suppose you're traveling to work and you see a stop sign. What do you do? Uh, it depends on how you exegete the stop sign. One expert might look up stop in his lexicons of English and discover that it can mean Something which prevents motion, such as a plug for a drain or a block of wood that prevents a door from closing. Two, a location where a train or bus lets off passengers. The main point of his sermon the following Sunday on this text is, when you see a stop sign, it's a place where traffic is naturally clogged, so it's a good place to let passengers off from your car. A New Testament scholar notices that there is no stop sign on Mark Street, but there is one on Matthew and Luke streets and concludes that the ones on Luke and Matthew streets are both copied from a sign on a completely hypothetical street called Q. <laughs> there is an excellent 300-page discussion of speculations on the origin of these uh, stop signs and the differences between the stop signs on Matthew and Luke street and the scholar's commentary on this passage. There's an unfortunate omission in the commentary, however. The author apparently forgot to explain what the text means. An Old Testament scholar points out that there are a number of stylistic differences between the first and second halves of the passage stop. For example, ST contains no enclosed areas and five line endings, whereas OP contains two enclosed areas and only one line termination. He concludes that the author for the second part is different from the author for the first part and probably lived hundreds of years earlier. Later scholars determined that the second half is itself actually written by two separate authors because of similar stylistic differences between O and P. Another prominent Old Testament scholar notes in his commentary that the stop sign would fit in better the context three streets back. Unfortunately, he neglected to explain why in his commentary. Clearly, it was moved to its present location by a later redactor. He thus exegeted... <laughs> 
He thus exegetes the intersection as though the stop sign were not there. Because of the difficulties in interpretation, another Old Testament scholar amends the text, changing T to H. Shop is much easier to understand in context than stop <laughs> because of the multiplicity of stores in the area. The textual corruption probably occurred because shop is so similar to stop on the sign several streets back that it's a natural mistake for a scribe to make. Thus, the sign should be interpreted to announce the existence of a shopping area. <laughs> An Orthodox Jew does one of two things. First, take another route to work that doesn't have a stop sign <laughs> so that he doesn't run the risk of disobeying the law. Number two, stop at the stop sign, say, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who hast given us thy commandment to stop. Wait three seconds according to his watch and then proceed. I incidentally, the Talmud has the following comments on this passage. Rabbi Meyer says, He who does not stop shall not live long. Rabbi Hillel says, Cursed be he who does not count the three before proceeding. Rabbi Sinan ben Yudah says, Why three? Because the Holy One, blessed be he, gives the law, the prophets, and the writings. Rabbi Ben Isaac says, because of the three patriarchs. Rabbi Yehuda says, why bless the Lord at a stop sign? Because it says, be still and know that I am God. <coughs> Rabbi Hezekiel says, when Jephthah returned from defeating the Ammonites, the Holy One, blessed be he, knew that a donkey would run out of the house and overtake his da daughter. But Jephthah did not stop at the stop sign, and the donkey did not have time to come out. For this reason, he saw his daughter first and lost her. Thus he was judged for his transgression at the stop sign. And he goes on and on. This is a long one. I won't keep reading that. But it's just like the Talmud, okay? <coughs> anyway, oh, let's skip over all of that. A Pharisee does the same thing as an Orthodox Jew, except that he waits 10 seconds instead of three. He also replaces his brake lights with 1,000-watt searchlights <laughs> and connects his horn so that it is activated whenever he touches the brake pedal. Anyway... <laughs> He goes on and he gives 17, you know, uh, various hermeneutical principles by which we can understand uh, this stop sign. By the way, did you know what an expert is? My brother shared this with me uh, this past week. He says, well, just take it apart, you know, from the Latin. A spurt is a drip of water under pressure, and an X is a has-been, so an expert is a has-been drip. <laughs> so So um, I probably shouldn't make too much fun because... Um, some of these evangelical experts really are godly Christians. I think they want to serve the Lord. In many cases, they have meant well when they have disagreed with the historic interpretation. And the historic interpretation, which is the one that I hold to, says that everything in this universe was created about 6,000 years ago in the space of six literal days and all very good. Okay? You signaling me for something? Oh, okay. I was just wondering if I'm turned off or something. And, and all very good. And so this is, the, this is the ordinary interpretation, and that view was virtually unquestioned until about 200 years ago, which, by the way, ought to make us pause and think, why in the world do we all of a sudden, in the last 200 years, have to have so many different interpretations to get away from the six-day creationist interpretation? I don't think it's the text that's driving people to that because, you know, what is it, 3,400 years where people didn't even question that interpretation. All of a sudden, in 200 years, we're desperately trying to come up with all kinds of new ones, and there's new ones developing all the time. I don't think it's the text. I think it's a, something outside of the text. Who knows what all of the reasons are that people give? I think sometimes it's clearly a lust for academic respectability in the eyes of the world, but there may be other reasons as well. 
But just think about this. In the last 200 years, which is when all of these new interpretations started arising, an ancient earth geology has so dominated secular scholarship that many Christians thought that the teaching of an ancient earth, pre-humanoid forms, and you know, the evolutionary interpretation of the geologic column were as unquestionably true as two plus two equals four. And they said that in their, in their writings, and you can sense that there's an embarrassment because they're seeking to defend the faith, and here's all these secularists mocking the Christians and how idiotic they are, and so there's this, there's this embarrassment of what the church holds to. I mean, wouldn't you be embarrassed if the church held that two plus two equaled five and based it on the Bible? That's the way that they felt, right? And so they were trying to come up with a way in terms of apologetics of how to reconcile the scriptures with science. And not all followers of these new teachings adopt them for the same reasons that the founders did. For example, some, I think very honestly and very clearly, think that the text drives them to do this. And I think probably it's because they've been taught that. But they think it really is an exegetical issue. But if you read the reasoning of those who invented these new theories, one of the things you will find across the board is that these people had a uh, desire to see science not fettered by this text. Uh, for example, let me just give you some examples. Meredith Klein says he was motivated to write his second essay, uh, which dealt with a, that, that, that new theory, um, uh, two-register um, cosmology. He said he was motivated to write that, quote, so that the scientist is left free of biblical constraints in hypothesizing about cosmic origins, unquote. So he wants the, 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 the scientist to not have to be constrained by this passage. Can you see how this definitely relates to the authority issue that we were talking about last week? It really is an authority question for him. And by the way, I should point out, he says he wants the scientist to not be fettered by this text in terms of origins. Origins has nothing to do with science. Science deals with the, what the five senses can study. Nobody was there when this world was made. How in the world could they say that they have been studying that? It is not science. It's more akin to philosophy uh, than it is to uh, science. But anyway, uh, you can see it clearly there. Merrill Unger, another very godly man, proposed his theory saying that, quote, the naive view that creation was affected in one ordinary week about 4,000 B.C. is absurd. Why is it absurd? He says it is absurd on scientific grounds. What's his authority? It's scientific grounds that is his authority. That's the thing that's driving his exegesis. By the way, he was quite happy with any number of old age interpretations of the Genesis chapter 1, and he lists them. He says, take your pick, basically. But one thing he absolutely was not willing to change on was an old earth geology. Another book that I've got on my shelf, uh, written by three-day agers, says that science must not be held hostage by the Bible. But what they have done in the process is they have left the Bible unable to speak to science, which means what? That the Bible is held hostage to science itself. Now, certainly with many, I think the goal was to win believe unbelievers to Christ, to remove any stumbling blocks to the gospel, and they saw this as being a major stumbling block. And so I'll give them credit for that. But I believe what has happened is they've unwittingly caused unbelievers to begin to question the authority or the meaning of Scripture because unbelievers look at stuff like this and they say, 
19 or 20 different views of, Revel uh, of Genesis chapter 1. What's going on here? They see the whole, it doesn't just affect Genesis 1, it affects your attitude to the whole of Scripture. And these unbelievers see Christians as turning the Scripture like a rubber nose any way that they want it to mean, which makes our job of apologetics so much more difficult. And so even though their, their motives may have been very good, unwittingly I think it has been a stumbling block. By the way, I think just as a spoof, maybe one of you, maybe Lee could do this, write a children's storybook using the 20 views. You start off with the, way, the right way, the way a child would read Genesis chapter 1, and you do the story, and then you give 19 different stories, all of them describing billions of years of nature, red in tooth and claw, uh, like these experts say, Genesis 1 obviously is describing. I think if you put it into a storybook form, I think it would be a great apologetic against all of these interpretations because all that you would read into there, and people would go, you got that out of Genesis chapter 1? I think it would be a great apologetic. But um, every one of these theories is trying to insert 15 billion years into a record that looks like it's seven days long. The pre-Genesis gap theory inserts 15 billion years of history before Genesis 1, verse 1, which means you have to reinterpret those first words. In the beginning, can't mean an absolute beginning. They say, well, it's the beginning of earth as we know it. And uh, if you want to read a chapter that goes through the technical Hebrew on this to demonstrate that this is an absolute beginning. In any beginning to have been begun, God was there. Okay, so it's an absolute beginning. Read Douglas Kelly's book. He's got a great chapter on, uh, entitled uh, Absolute Beginning. And then there is another gap theory that has a judgment of Satan and a destruction of all previous animal life between verses 1 and 2. And not all of them, but most of them put billions of years of uh, history with all of the ancient animal life and stuff like that you find in the geologic re record. They put that between verses uh, 1 and 2. And by the way, that's not something necessarily to, to laugh about because I'll be showing in my paper, any of you who study that, that of all of the theories, this is probably the most plausible of theories. And I may take some time to go through it and explain why it has uh, at least some degree of uh, plausibility. Okay, there is a midweek gap theory which says that days 1 through 3 occurred 15 billion years ago. They're literal days, so literal three days of creation that involved complete universe, including animals, dinosaurs, uh, angels, all kinds of stuff. 15 billion years of history. Then there was a, a, a judgment of Satan. There was a cataclysm which miraculously occurs between verses 13 and 14. Uh, so that's where the cataclysm, it was of such a character that everything became shrouded in darkness. And then God restarts his creation in verse 14, reconstitutes the earth again in a literal four days, 10,000 years ago. Okay? And so when he starts creating in verse 14, there's already all kinds of dinosaur bones in the, in the earth. But that's when he makes modern animals and that's where he makes uh, man. So that's the midweek gap theory. <coughs> and uh, really, on all of these theories, you could say, voila, no contradiction with science, you know, because you can fit the whole geological column into verses 1 through 13. Then there's the multiple gap theory that says that there were six literal days with billions of years between each of those days. 
Then there's the day-age theory, which uh, takes each day as being millions or billions of years long. And their favorite passage is 2 Peter 3, verse 8, which says, But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And they say, see, when God uses the term day, it can mean an age. It can mean a thousand years, and if it can mean a thousand years, it can mean billions of years. One of the first things I would point out is that it does not say in Second Peter that a day is a thousand years. It uses a simile. It's like a thousand years. It's as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as a day in terms of God's um, uh, eternal perspective because God is above time. He experiences the past, the present, and the future simultaneously. Okay? Eternity is totally different than... So the first thing is, I would say, it's, it's a simile in first, first Peter. It is not a simile here. Okay? Secondly, second thing that I would uh, uh, say about that is that Genesis is talking about that, that um, a day is as a thousand years in eternity. In other words, God's not time-bounded. And a thousand years is as a day. It doesn't matter. God experiences it all. This is talking about history, though, in Genesis chapter 1. And a day on earth in history is a day, not a year. It's not a thousand years. It's only an eternity that it's as a thousand years. But <clears throat> uh, just take a look at um, the um, verses 4 through 5, because I think God goes to great lengths to define what he means by a day. In verse 5, he calls it a, 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 a night day sequence he calls it a light a, a darkness light sequence god called the light day and the darkness he called night so the evening and the morning were the first day now if we interpret day in this chapter as meaning an age then we get into real trouble a lot of inconsistencies and let me just give you one example verse 14 if day means age and they're consistent which they're not consistent in their interpretation then verse 14 would read then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the geological ages of millions or billions of years from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for geologic ages of millions of years and for years. And you can see the same absurdity in verses 16, 18, 19, and chapter 2, verse 3. Now, I'm not going to define all of these things. That paper defines it for you. Well, let me give you a couple more. The hesitation theory says God gave the commands, let there be light, let there be animals, you know, let the earth appear dry land up here he gave those on six literal days 15 billion years ago but that they didn't immediately come into fruition in other words the the fulfillment of those commands happened maybe some happened one billion years later and others five billion years later and ne not necessarily in the same order but he gave all of the commands on six literal days and then they were fulfilled over a period of um, uh, 15 billion years then there's the Edenic creation theory, and there's a couple of other similar ones, but I'm just lumping those together, uh, which says that chapter 1 is using cosmic language, true, they say, but it's using cosmic language to describe the creation of a garden in local Mesopotamia. Uh, then there's the relativity day theory that uses Einsteinian physics to say that, you know, in terms of that physics, what could be billions of years from one perspective could be 24 hours from another perspective that, that's uh, another theory that's given then there's the days of revelation theory that says hey the seven days had nothing to do with creation the seven days 
are days that Moses experienced where each day God gave him another revelation that gave various facets of what happened in creation and all of the whole thing could have happened in an instant or it could have been over billions of years, we're not told, but it has nothing to do with sequence in creation. It has to do with sequence of revelations that God gave to Moses. I want you to take a look at something, go in verse 5. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. I mean, he links the two together. He's not describing something Moses is experiencing. The day that he's describing is something that happened in, in creation. Uh, the framework hypothesis sees the days not as time markers at all. It just sees those days as poetical devices, just like uh, the stone in the wilderness was a poetical kind of device, an illustration. They say the days are poetical devices that are grouping the description of creation in a topical fashion. But there's no order, there's no sequence. Everything's up for grabs uh, in terms of how it happened in creation. But I want you to notice in verse 6, and actually at the beginning of each day, it says, then. The, the Hebrew, there's a special syntax called the wow consecutive. And the wow consecutive uh, is used frequently in historical narrative. It's indicating this happened, then this happened. And so there's a historical sequence. So in verse 6, then God said. Verse 9, then God said. He's saying this is history that he is talking about. Now, again, all of these views that come out might make you wonder, you know, man, if there's so many scholars, bright people, who have come up with all of these interpretations, maybe the, diff the, the text really is difficult to understand, and maybe I should leave it up to the experts. And the reason I have wasted 20 minutes of my <laughs> sermon giving this preamble is to try to demonstrate to you that the experts really do not know. In fact, experts frequently, well, I shouldn't say frequently, from time to time change their views when they just have too many difficulties with a given view and they'll adopt another view. I know some that have adopted three views of, um, of how this could have come apart. One pastor here in Omaha told me that, um, uh, that uh, any number of the views, he didn't care which one so long as it gave uh, long, long ages. I think there is something perverse about the notion that you cannot understand, you commoners, Okay, cannot understand the scripture unless you read it through expert A's special hermeneutical grid. There's something perverse about that. And uh, one, one pastor here in Omaha told me that um, uh, actually the grids of experts A, B, C, and D were all equally valid. And the only thing he was offended by was by my saying that it's obvious God made it in six days. He was dogmatic that you could not be dogmatic. And I think that is so much the spirit of our age. Uh, anything that there is a controversy on in Scripture, people say, oh, you cannot be dogmatic on that because you might offend some people. And I'm sorry, if the Scripture says it, we have to say it, even if it does step on some people's toes. In fact, I, I had a, you know, a little controversy. I was just being very polite. We were, the assignment was, um, what does the Bible say about women pastors? So I said, okay. <laughs> I just brought my, my paperwork. And I was very, very calm, just presenting some of the uh, scripture and acknowledging if you don't take this, here's the only alternatives that are left and laying out about seven or eight alternatives that people have given. But there were two pastors that were just very, very upset. They said, there are so many interpretations and the, pa the scripture is so unclear on this subject 
that you cannot be dogmatic on it. Of course, they were dogmatically defending the fact that women could be pastors, and they just wanted me to shut up because they didn't have any scripture, you know, to defend it with. Uh, I said, you know, what's unclear about this? What's unclear about Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to have, to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence and some of the other scriptures. But anyway, that's the spirit, I think, of, of our age. Well, in the same way, I don't know how many articles that I have read that have said that an ordinary, simple reading of Genesis 1 is naive, and you need to understand their particular brand of new hermeneutics before you can understand the Bible. And I think that what is happening when people do that is they are stealing the bread from God's children. God says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He, he's indicating that the scriptures are not just for the experts. He, he wrote the scriptures for people. In fact, he told the Bereans, he praised them for checking everything that he said out by the scriptures, which implies what? They, understand, they, can, they have the ability to understand the scriptures to check them out, right? And so that's one of the reasons I keep telling you people, don't believe it, because Pastor Kaiser says, read it in the scriptures. God intended the scriptures to be interpreted by you. Now, what I want to do quickly this morning, and I'm only going to get through day one, we're not going to look at the whole passage, is I want to go verse by verse through this chapter, then draw some practical applications, especially next week. But I hope you can see by the end that the six-day creation exposition is the most obvious, clear interpretation. Uh, and God, I think, wrote the scripture to be understood by all, not to confuse us. Okay, let's start with verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we're off to a, a good start with a uh, clear contradiction of atheistic science, which says that there was no beginning to time. There was no beginning to matter. There was no beginning to space. This is talking about an absolute beginning of the space-mass-time uh, continuum. But just think about those words, in the beginning. If God was subject to time, like some evangelical, well, they're, they're not evangelical, Theologians, but like some evangelical theologians have um, uh, been saying, they're still in the evangelical camp, though really, you look at all the compromise they've made on the scripture, I, I don't consider them evangelicals. But they say time is an attribute of God. He cannot escape from time, which means he is limited. He can't foreknow the future. Um, he's changing. He can make mistakes, different things like that. But if God is bounded by time like we are, then there never would be a beginning, would there? Because time would always be. We're talking here not just about the beginning of the earth and any beginning to have been begun. God was there, and that's when he started and when he created the earth. So it's an absolute beginning. Now, what he creates is the heavens and the earth, and I'm not going to spend much time because I dealt with that last week, but uh, there's two heavens that were created. The first heaven was not created until day two. That's the atmosphere. Second heaven is space. Space is not nothingness. We'll be seeing a little bit later on. It's an absolute necessity to protect us from the overpowering awesomeness of God's presence. But anyway, space is this universe that God has created into which he places the planets, the stars, the moon, the earth. And so that's the second heaven. The third heaven, and the second heaven was created on this day. The third heaven was also created. That is the abode of angels. And I believe uh, angels were created on this day, and we looked at some scriptures last week that gave hints of that. So contrary to the pre-Genesis gap theory that places billions of years of geology before verse 1, uh, this says, no, the earth had its beginning here. 
And by the way, if you want to read many profound implications of verse 1, read Gary North's commentary on, on, on Genesis. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, let's go on to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now let me give credit to one of the views that I think probably has the most plausibility, and that is the gap theory that was developed by Dr. Thomas Chalmers. Uh, later on, it was popularized by C.I. Schofield in the Schofield Reference Bible. But one, I have to admit, one possible translation of this verse is that the earth became formless and void. If it became formless and void, that implies it wasn't formless and void in verse 1, right? And <coughs> the gap theory says that there was a, a non-formless and void earth, a complete earth in other words, and universe uh, created in verse 1, including all kinds of ancient life forms, dinosaurs, angels and things of that nature and again there was a fall of satan and uh, the earth uh, became destroyed and uh, god's judgment then fell upon the earth and the fossil records that we uh, see largely relates to that uh, period in verse one so god then skips over those ages and in verse two He's talking about the reformation of the earth and later on the appearing of the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. through the mists because they were already created uh, before. Now let me give you a handful of their best arguments and a brief explanation of why I do not think that uh, Dr. Chalmers' attempt uh, works. First one I've mentioned is that uh, they say the verse 1 can be translated became. My response is, well, that is a possible translation, but I think it's extremely unlikely because it's a very, very rare uh, translation of that uh, verb. And I think, especially since there's an extremely common Hebrew word that means to become, it seems unlikely to me that something as cataclysmic, as profound as the day-age theory holds to, that Moses would not have used the word that would have been so easy to misinterpret he would have used the word uh, to become and i know of no published translation there are over 200 published uh, english translations that translates it as become they all translate it as was doesn't mean it's right but i would say it's unlikely unless we are forced to adopt that interpretation from some of their other arguments so let's look at, at their second one second argument is that only perfection could come from god's hand and without form and void is a statement of imperfection and our response in part is that this very objection contradicts their thesis because they believe that God judged the earth well if it, God judged it imperfection came from their hand if indeed this is describing imperfection <clears throat> but secondly how is gradual progress imperfect how does the first stage of a project imply imperfection is a baby imperfect just because the baby is not a full-grown man? I don't think it's an adequate argument. It could be an adjunct one. Uh, their strongest argument is the next one. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 45, verse 18. Uh, they point out very correctly that Isaiah 48, verse 18 uses the same Hebrew word for void when it says, he did not create it a waste place, or some translated as void, or empty, or chaos. He did not create it that way 
Uh, something else, therefore, must have made it a waste place, and they say that would be Satan. Furthermore, and just keep your finger there, furthermore, Jeremiah 4, 19 through 26, describes the destruction of Jerusalem using exactly the same terms without a waste and void. Isaiah 24, 1 uses similar language for judgment. Without form and void is therefore a phrase indicating judgment happened between these verses. Now, there is, a, I think, a degree of plausibility there, even though I think most occurrences of that word does not have anything to do with judgment. There, there's a plausibility, and here's my response. My response is that the phrase in verse 18 of Isaiah 45 should not be taken out of context. Let's read the whole verse. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it, who did not create it in vain, or some translated, who did not create it to be empty, but notice the next defining clause, who formed it to be inhabited. Okay, it was speaking of the purpose of creation, that it was not meant to be an empty earth. He formed it to be inhabited. Well, how long did God take to form the earth? How long did he uh, take to be involved in creation? Well, it was six days. By the time he's finished creation, it's not imperfect. So there's really no contradiction whatsoever uh, since by the end of his creative week, uh, it is inhabited. Now, there's a number of other uh, points on my handout that I make, but I just want to deal with the darkness argument. Let's move on to verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, they paint the darkness there as being sinister, and that there is a contrast between the darkness and the, the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't see anything sinister or any contrast there it's just that the spirit is there personally working upon uh, this work with his creative activity but they will also say that the darkness is not called good though the light is look at verse 3 then god said let there be light and there was light <coughs> and then in verse 4 and god saw the light that it was good and god divided the light uh, from the darkness. Now, an implication that they sometimes bring up is that the light alone is mentioned good, implying that the darkness is bad. Can you see how their uh, theory is developing here? And so again, they say it's a reference to judgment. The darkness came from the judgment. Now, before I deal with other implications, let me set the record straight that Satan did not create the darkness. God did. Nor was it a sign of judgment from God's hand. I think it was actually a protection from his hand. First of all, Isaiah 45, 7 <coughs> is that the right reference? Let me look it up and make sure. Isaiah 45, 7. Yes. I form the light and create darkness. Now, notice the difference in terms there. He doesn't create the light. He forms the light and he creates darkness. The word create is bara, which means to create out of nothing, which means if God created the darkness, there was no darkness before uh, before the, the time of creation. <coughs> In fact, one of the first things that God had to create was the darkness, and he had to do it for two reasons. First of all, Scripture says God is light, and in there is no darkness at all. Uh, uh, and so for there to be any darkness, there had to be darkness created. Darkness is part and parcel of the created space-mass-time continuum. Because if God was all that there was before day one, that means there was nothing but light and glory. There was no darkness, and that's why the word bara is used. He creates the darkness out of nothing. Secondly, this darkness was necessary, and it was good. And, of course, 
already in verse 31, uh, we're told that this darkness is good. We know he created it. And verse 31 says, Then God saw everything that he made, and indeed it was very good. It was very good. So what was good about this darkness? Well, it was necessary because the Scripture portrays God as being so awesome, so powerful, so majestic, that if he did not cloak some of his glory from creation, the creation itself would disintegrate. And there are many scriptures that indicate this. Revelation uh, um, chapter 20, verse 11 says that if the heavens and the earth were to see his face, they would flee away from his presence and be no more. When God showed Moses his glory, Moses didn't know what he was asking for, and God says, you can't see my full glory. He did show him a little bit of his glory, and that glory was so much that his face radiated, and other people couldn't look at Moses. But what did he do? He hid Moses in a cleft, then he sheltered him with his hand, and then he passed by so that he could see just his back end is the way it's worded there. So he comes in a theophany. He's not even there seeing the full glory of God. It's a theophany. It's a, a physical manifestation. And even there it was overwhelming because God says no man can see God and live, God's glory and live. Psalm 18 verse 11 says, He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him. God was hiding the magnificence of his being from his creation he had to or his creation would perish now just think about that for a moment that's the kind of majestic God who has who has uh, condescended to love us and to send his son to die for us it's that kind of a God an incredibly majestic God because of his love for his creation he protects us within the darkness of a vast space called this universe and it was only when that protection was in place that the Holy Spirit allowed a controlled light, just enough light, so that it would not destroy the creation, so that it was a good light for the creation to come forth. Verse 3, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. Now notice that unlike verses 14 through 16, where God gives light through the sun, moon, and stars, in this verse it's God himself who gives light to penetrate the darkness. Now, many people have objected. They've said there's no way there could be light unless there was a light bearer, so the sun must, must have somehow been there. The framework hypothesis people uh, say that. But, you know, that is absolutely not true. There's been many times in which God brought supernatural light to the earth without any physical light bearer. You can think of the Israelites who were in Egypt, and uh, God brings total darkness, thick darkness, upon the land of Egypt. God does, okay? And what does he do in each of the homes of the Israelites? He puts light there. This is not the light of the sun. It's not the light of candles. This is supernatural light that's in there. Or you can think of the Israelites who are being pursued by the Egyptians at the sea. And God comes between the Egyptians and the Israelites with that Shekinah glory, that pillar cloud. And he says it's total darkness on the, on the uh, side of the Egyptians and light on the side of the Israelites. So there's that darkness light uh, aspect as well. Uh, let me give you just another scripture that uh, appeals to this point of creation. Um, it's Psalm 104, verse 2, describing this time when the Spirit is hovering over the waters. It says, He wraps Himself in light as with a garment. And so I believe when it speaks of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the Spirit of God is omnipresent. But hovering over the waters implies a theophany, implies a localized presence. And so this, I believe, is the glory cloud and that psalm indicates he then wrapped himself in light, and that light 
is shining upon the earth. Uh, verses 4 and 5. And God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, for the evening and the morning were the first day. Very, very careful to define his terms. He calls the, the word day. He says, what do I mean by day? Okay, right off the bat, let's define it. And he defines it in exactly the same way that we use it as being the, 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 the light portion, first of all, of the day-night cycle, uh, just like we use it. It's not a metaphor. It's not a pictorial uh, demonstration, not a figure. And then secondly, the whole cycle of evening and morning is called the day because the light section has the dominant part in God's mind. And so day does not mean a geological period of millions and millions of years. God defines his terms to refer to ordinary, literal days of light, cycles of evening and morning. Now, why did God start things out with darkness? Some people have wondered about that. Well, it's because every, he wants every day of creation to have the same evening and morning cycle. So it's got to start with evening, right? It's got to start with darkness. And that is why the Hebrews begin their day in the evening, 6 o'clock to be precise, you know, at dusk. Uh, that's when they, they, they begin it. And so here the evening and the morning were the first day. Now, what about the length of the day? Some people say, okay, granted, the last three days or if you're talking about the whole week, the last four days had to be literal days, but the first three days really couldn't have been literal days because there was no sun around which the earth could orbit. And so, you know, how, there's, no, there's no markers. How in the world can you have literal uh, three days? Well, let me point out something, that the orbit of the earth around the sun has nothing to do with the day. That has to do with the year, Right? And so as it's orbiting around the sun, it takes a full year to make that cycle. Seasons are a, uh, are a part of the tilt of the Earth's axis, but the day-night cycle has to do with the Earth being spinning on its axis, right? And so when does the Earth start to spin? If we've got a localized presence of the Holy Spirit in Shekinah glory, how is there going to be a day and a night? It's by the Earth spinning, and God sets that evening and morning cycle going right from day one, and it never stops. There is no change to the earth's spin. The only sun in place, but the earth is still there spinning. And so God uh, makes some changes in terms of years and seasons, and that comes up later. But in terms of days, it was already spinning right from the beginning. And that's why we say it has to be a 24-hour period. It has to be exactly the same kind of day on day one that it was on days four and five because there's um, uh, of that evening-morning cycle, first day, second day, third day that, that uh, he uses here. And what I find ironic is that even unbelieving Hebrew scholars are taken aback at the length to which scripture, uh, Christians go to try to get out of the embarrassment of this passage. In the 1800s, Professor Marcus Dodds of New uh, College, Edinburgh, and he's a rank liberal, but he said, all attempts to force its statements into accord are futile and mischievous and to be condemned because they do violence to Scripture, foster a style of interpretation by which the text is forced to say whatever the interpreter desires and prevents us from recognizing the real nature of these sacred writings. And he says, you know, what's going on here? 20 different interpretations of this passage that are so radically different. 
More recently, Oxford professor James Barr says, so far as I know, there is no professor of Hebrew or Old Testament at any world-class university who does not believe that the writers of Genesis 1 through 11 intended to convey to their readers the ideas that A, creation took place in a series of six days, which were the same as the days of 24 hours we now experience, B, the figures contained in the Genesis genealogy provided by simple addition, a chronology from the beginning of the world up to later stages in the biblical story, and C, Noah's flood was understood to be worldwide and to have extinguished all human and land animal life except for those on the ark, or to put it negatively, the apologetic arguments which suppose the days of creation to be long eras of time, the figures of years not to be chronological, and the flood to be merely local Mesopotamian flood are not taken seriously by any professor as far as I know. That's the perspective of pagan scholars. They are not impressed with that apologetic. They just shake their heads at Christians. Why? We're not coming with the authority of Scripture. We're just coming with the authority of man. And I think it's a shame. And that needs to be changed. We need to pray for reformation in the church. We need to recognize science is not absolute. It is not absolute. It constantly is changing and revising and correcting itself. You look at the last 200 years of geology, astronomy, and all those things. They're constantly making adjustments, even on the age of the universe, supposed age. Christian creationists, on the other hand, starting with the absolute testimonies of Scripture, especially Genesis 1 through 11, but there are many other passages as well, have gone out and they've done phenomenal experiments. But, you know, what's interesting is that the pagans had done the experimenting for us themselves. I've got a book that goes through 121 proofs for a young earth, and these are all from the, the, stand, uh, the standard secular journals, academic journals that are out there. These are called anomalies. You know what an anomaly is, right? It's an experiment that fails. <laughs> doesn't fit. Every, they're looking at these things. They've got a few things that seem to point to billions of years, but uh, all this book does is it goes through and it footnotes incredibly all of the different for one uh, for one proof of a young earth it'll give all kinds of journals that have these experiments that show anomalies and so it's really secular science that should be on the defensive not Christian why because God's world is always going to line up with his word and we ought not to be the ones embarrassed by science Actually, it's the Christian scientists, I think, many times who are on the cutting edge of new discoveries, and we need to be in support of them and encouraging them. Now, I'm going to try to finish this off next week. Obviously, I haven't done very well this week, five verses. But uh, let me end with some quick admonitions. First of all, don't be intimidated by experts who try to make what is simple look complex. Eat the food that God has laid before you, Okay. 1 Corinthians says, God did not choose many wise or mighty or noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. God wrote this book to be understood by simple people. He did not write it for the experts. It was for simple people. So don't let the experts rob the word from you. Secondly, when some expert uh, tells you, you know, that the earth was, uh, uh, or some, some aspect of this universe 15 billion years ago, just ask him, how do you know? Were you there? <laughs> you know, all we can look at phenomenon and interpret it. And it's been interpreted so many different ways. God was there, and he has told us exactly what went on. <coughs> uh, some people say that 
Um, you know, Moses didn't understand modern geology, and he couldn't have written it in a way that would be understandable to us today. And that is an insult against the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Second Peter one twenty one says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And that is, the, the comments that they make, that's insult, even though evangelicals uh, sometimes make that. So trust in the inspiration of Scripture. Thirdly, realize that every word of the text is important if God expects us to live by every word. And fourth, worship God and appreciate his power. I mean, look at the vastness of his power. He speaks and it is done. It doesn't take him 15 billion years of working to try to get this thing uh, put together. God declares fiat and it is done. And this is the God who cares for you and could provide for your needs. It ought to give you a trust in almighty God that nothing is too difficult for him. And you know, the God who was so gently protected his creation from being disintegrated by the awesome majesty of his presence by surrounding himself with darkness and only allowing the amount of light that would be for its good. He's the God who cares about you as well and will provide for your good. He's the God that enabled this universe. He is the God that can enable you. And I just trust you, I encourage you to trust him and uh, to bow down before him and to worship and adore our great and awesome God. Amen. Father God, we do glory in your word. We trust it. We take it at face value. Father, it is our food. You have said in Deuteronomy that we are not to neglect any of your word because you have said it is your life. And Father, we do realize that it is our life. We thank you for all of the axioms that your word provides so that when we're in science or when we're in different areas, we don't go down blind alleys. We don't pursue uh, um, uh, billions of dollars of expenditures and trying to find life on Mars. Father, I thank you that your word protects us by giving us guidelines in doing our research. And I pray that you would enable us to take dominion to your honor and to your glory in a way that, Father, does justice and does honor to your word, where your word comes first in everything that we do. We bless you, Lord, for having given it to us. We worship you. And we want to close out this uh, period of worship, Father, by uh, singing to you of your greatness. In Jesus' name, amen.